0: You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan, I'm a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Dan, a Japanese scholar from Texas. Today we're going to talk about bizarre gaming gadgets. One of them is actually the good old Game Boy camera. And just in thinking about this episode and what to include in it, I had to think back to these good old times when I used the Game Boy camera for the first time, and it was almost like magic. Even though it was, in hindsight, quite trashy, I must say, pretty terrible. <laughs> <laughs> these images, well, these photos, they look terrible. Like uh, nowadays, any smartphone, even the cheapest end model, can take much better pictures than a Game Boy camera can. It's kind of crazy that it was even,
1: uh, it was even thought of. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think that Nintendo is known for a lot of weird stuff, which we'll get into, and I have a lot to say about the the Game Boy camera. Uh, but I think the weirdest thing to me is that uh they always look so creepy. Just the the hideous grayscale, and it looked like you know when you when you watch a scary movie and there's like a box of Polaroids and there's something truly horrific being told through those Polaroids? It made me think of a great joke. Um, from a, a YouTube channel, Red Letter Media, where they explain that Polaroids are creepy because no one had to take them to the film developer. It was just, it was just being made on their own. Ditto the Game Boy camera, even creepier.
0: Some yeah. lunatics out there taking photos. <laughs> but still, it was just kind of... It was like magic at the time when, when it came out. I remember that I, I, I slotted it in. I was like a mere child. And uh, I, I took pictures... And then you could take like a picture of your face and you could slot it into some kind of like weird games. They were like super simplistic mini games, And I think it was a rather expensive thing and I enjoyed it for about three hours. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then it has basically extended its use. Well, I have some fun
1: statistics that we'll uh, look at that at the macro level stuff on. So <laughs> ah. yeah, three
0: hours is not unusual, I don't think. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. We're going to go through a whole list of bizarre gaming gadgets. We basically dug around in the history of video games. Some of them are more motion focused. Others are just like weird controllers or strange accessories that have really no bearing in contemporary video game culture. We're going to talk about all of these. But before we do that, I would like to remind you that if you like this show and you want to help us make it happen, then you can, of course, support us by going to studyingpixels.com slash plus because there you can get all of our episodes entirely ad free you'll get a lovely sticker and monthly plus episodes what's the current plus episode i actually forgot because we always pre-record one in advance it's our nintendo one i believe is it the origins of nintendo still i believe so Yeah, the origins of Nintendo. That's a good one. It's a good one because we really go way back into the history of Nintendo, not just starting with Donkey Kong and Super Mario, but even further back. So basically, where most people start telling the story of Nintendo is where our first chapter ends. Yes.
1: So if you're interested in Japanese history uh, from your favorite Japanese scholar and Stefan chiming in with Nintendo facts, then please listen.
0: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. And here we are talking about bizarre gaming gadgets. We've got nine of them lined up, starting with probably the most successful one on the list, which is the Guitar Hero Guitar. Yes, I would,
1: I would think so. The, mo- I mean, it's certainly the one that kind of set the precedent after its release, because I don't know if you uh, remember this, dear listener, but from around 2005 to really 2015, it feels like every game came with a peripheral. And I think you can trace that back to 2005's release of the original Guitar Hero.
0: It was just so tremendously successful. I remember so many parties, or at least... I have fragments of memories of so many parties <laughs> where people were just like, you know, just fumbling around with these plastic controllers.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, my favorite thing, too, is that all of my friends who could actually play guitar uh, despised it.
0: <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. I can, <laughs> I can attest to that. Yes, because yeah. I actually do play the guitar mm. um, and I always found it derivative. Uh, like it's it's fun. It's it's a fun little thing that you can easily get into. But even if you are accustomed to playing guitar, you don't necessarily are good at guitar hero because the workings are so different. Yeah, that it's just a whole new thing to learn. And of course, conversely, playing lots of guitar hero will not help you learn <laughs> actually play guitar. It was it was a fun
1: peripheral though. I mean, it it, it makes sense that it was so. Successful because although this episode is called bizarre uh, gaming objects, right, or bizarre gaming peripherals, um, gadgets, then uh, whichever term we want to use, the uh, the fun thing about a lot of them is that they worked well. They were just weird, and the Guitar Hero guitar is one that really worked well for the game that it was designed for. Especially, I was looking into the history of it, and I remember when this came out in two thousand five for the PS two. I didn't have it, uh, but a lot of my friends did. And the reason I didn't have it is because it was very expensive. You know, technically you could play the game on the PS2 controller, just the normal DualShock, but where's the fun in that? I mean, yeah. it's you want to play the guitar. And I think it was, in my memory, it was around 100 to 120 US dollars when it came out because the controller was pretty expensive. But it was really successful, and... It was a project of Red Octane and Harmonix, these two um, developers that came together, kind of in tandem for both the game and the controller. The controller is actually attributed to a guy named Jack McCauley, who worked at Red Octane. Um, and even though he created what we would consider now to be the de facto Guitar Hero guitar, there was precedent for this. Guitar Hero wasn't super a super new concept. There was a 1999 Konami game called Guitar Freaks that was an arcade game, largely in Japan, that had a similar setup. It wasn't as complex as the Guitar Hero guitar, and by that I mean it had three buttons instead of five. Yeah, <laughs> but there
0: there was some precedent for this, and the precedent that took place in arcades. I think this is a very mm. important distinction, since um, of course you want to feel like a rock star when playing oh, yeah. Guitar Hero and they were the ones that kind of brought it to brought it into people's living rooms into like you know parties and so on whereas in an arcade you would be more in public and you would have more like a public performance i assume
1: oh yeah and i think um guitar freaks had a similar setup that later guitar hero games would have where there were a lot of different versus modes and and sort of co-op modes and things like that so it was meant to be played in public and with your friends at the you know, the Konami or Sega arcades in Japan. But it really took off with Guitar Hero in 2005 because it was, at the time, a very novel concept, for Western audiences at least, where, you know, here's a game where you can be a rock star and play a play a guitar. And uh, I think part of its massive success was that unlike other rhythm and music games that had come out, Guitar Hero actually had licensed songs in it, (laughs) and to be fair, they weren't the actual recordings. They were covers of those licensed songs in Guitar Hero 1 and 2. Guitar Hero 3 is where it kind of gained enough traction where it could actually use the recordings, but it lended a certain credence to it because it wasn't just made-up songs. It was actual rock songs that you could play, like, you know, um, I think Stairway to Heaven was on one of them. There was, you know, some Wolfmother songs, Led Zeppelins, classic stuff, right? And it was all on there and you could really feel like you were playing a concert in the comfort of your living room.
0: Yeah, I think that's really part and parcel of the success of Guitar Hero, making you feel Mm. like the moment you press the button at the right time and you flick this, I think it was like five buttons in the left hand and then you had like this just tiny lever that you grab with your... Thumb and your pointy, point pointing finger and the right yeah. hand, and you just wiggled up and down, basically in the rhythm of the song.
1: Yeah, and it was it was also cool because the better you got at it, the more you realized that the way that the game was set up was you didn't actually have to hit the lever every time. You could just you could get combos with the frets. So it came down to a point where if you ever want a really interesting fun time, there's a whole niche YouTube uh, sect sect that's about. <laughs> people playing guitar hero mods and it is incredible to watch them do it it's certainly not the same as somebody playing a real guitar but the idea that it's transposed that kind of technique into a video game controller is really interesting
0: yeah into a video game controller good that you mentioned that because i'm mm. i'm jumping a bit ahead but i do know that there's a uh like an entire uh yeah i don't want to use the word cult but it's a it is something that has been cultivated <laughs> no. It's something that has been cultivated. Playing other games that are not Guitar Hero with the Guitar Hero (laughs) controller, where you play like, you know, I remember Dark Souls without getting hurt even once, playing with the Guitar Hero controller.
1: Yeah, it's, it opened up, that's a really great point. It opened up a whole uh, avenue of challenge play for people. Those videos are also really fun to watch. Like, uh, you know, Elden Ring, no
0: hit, using nothing but the uh, Guitar Hero Les Paul. (laughs) That's maybe where the... Where this accessory, the Guitar Hero controller, which in itself is not that bizarre, it's pretty well crafted, but where it kind of becomes a bizarre gaming gadget,
1: especially because in other gadgets that we're going to talk about, there wasn't a lot of um, uh, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of transitive action going on. Usually, the gadgets only worked for the game that it was designed for. But to your point, Guitar Hero, because it was just a controller. You could plug it into anything and have a weird fun time with it there's a couple of other things i just want to briefly mention because these are actually bizarre um of course guitar hero success led to uh its competitor rock band which i thought was probably the pinnacle of this kind of thing it was a little more complex than the co- guitar hero guitar and it added in a microphone a bass guitar and drums which was really cool I had a lot of fun times playing rock band with friends. You could be a whole band. Yeah. And they, they had the same licensed stuff. I think one of the more successful versions that they had was a Beatles rock band, which was really cool. So it was a it was a fun little time. And then that, <laughs> for uh, Harmonix to remain kind of on the top of their game, they started branching out very strangely into uh, DJ Hero, <laughs> which... <laughs> was the same concept, but with a turntable controller. And I remember that was kind of popular for like a month. Yeah. And then all I remember of it now is that there was a DS port that had this insane contraption that you would plug into the Game Boy port. And then you would have like these four little buttons and you would use the stylus to basically mock a DJ turntable. <laughs> so- <laughs> So it eventually devolved into
0: weirdness that didn't work quite as well as the guitar uh, controller, but it all started with that cool guitar. And it's nowadays it is the kind of thing where some people still have in their let's say recreational space an entire corner filled with this these plastic instruments. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> I know my parents
0: have two of my
1: guitar hero guitars hanging out in their basement, so they're, uh, <laughs> they're
0: they loom large. I've never had. Uh, Guitar Hero Guitar, nor have I ever had the game. I just only played it at parties. Mm. Because I do remember that um, it was maybe, I want to say like 10 years ago, Ubisoft released um, Rocksmith. And they also did like a Rocksmith 2, which was kind of, it, it tried to tie into the aesthetics and the success of Guitar Hero, but you would plug in your actual electric guitar. And you would learn how to play the guitar, more or less. It's like, it's not a, it doesn't replace actual practice. It doesn't replace having maybe a guitar teacher or following uh, video instructions. Mm. But it was cool. It was cool. It it does feel good when you can actually learn a song in these guitar hero aesthetics. So they really coined that.
1: They did. And I think I, I I'm curious about finding out more about the history of Rocksmith too, because That's the kind of game where I feel like you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, in the sense that they were banking on its success for the prior success of Guitar Hero. However, as we mentioned, Guitar Hero's goal was not to teach you guitar. So I think when people played it who didn't have actual guitar experience like you do, Stefan, it was more like, oh, this isn't the kind of game I was expecting with all of the previous Guitar Hero rock band experience that I have.
0: Yeah, yeah. Especially if you if you plug in that actual guitar, it's just like when you, uh, if when you are experienced in playing um, rock band or something with a, a plastic guitar, and then you take a real guitar into your hand, and then you realize like boop, mm. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm not as cool as I thought. <laughs> That's it, <already. laughs> burp, burp,
1: burp. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> yeah, you're learning you're learning uh, scales, and you're not
0: playing. You know, the devil went down to Georgia or something. Yeah. <laughs> so give me a couple of years, I'll get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, one of the most bizarre gaming gadgets that I have ever encountered is the Tony Hawk Ride Board. <laughs> We've done a whole episode on this, a whole plus episode that you can find on studyingpixels.com plus. Uh, but the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater series, it was once um, a very highly regarded and very successful uh, skateboarding video game series. They transitioned... At the peak of their success, you could say, or as it was like, as they were beyond the peak of their success, they transitioned to a new developer and the series fell from grace. And one of the most bizarre decisions that they made then is to develop Tony Hawk Ride, which is by Robomodo and it came out in 2009. It was also, uh, it had a sequel called Tony Hawk Shred, I think. Mm. And they had this fantastic idea that instead of having you just perform tricks with your regular PlayStation controller, why not? make an actual plastic skateboard um, that, of course, it doesn't have any wheels, otherwise it would be pretty dangerous, you know? <laughs> it's basically just like a it's it's a, like a plastic board that you can just put on the ground, on the floor, on your carpet in front of the television, and then you can wiggle around on it.
1: <laughs> now, now, Stefan, you asked the very pointed question, why not do this? I can think of a lot of reasons
0: <laughs> yeah. why not to do this. <laughs> Probably the biggest reason why they should have never done it is that it never worked. It yeah. was always laggy. It was always unreliable. You know, you have to, if you do, if you want to do a grab trick in Tony Hawks, where you basically just make some kind of cool thing and then you grab the board with your hand, then you have to like bend down and you have to like <laughs> grab the board. And it's like, it's slow because obviously you're not a professional skater and it doesn't make you feel like one. It makes you feel less like a professional skater than the actual. Uh, using a controller with the with the <laughs> uh, the older video games, because right. it was also conceptually limited. One of the cool things about the Tony Hawk series was always that you could just freely explore small areas and you could perform tricks and be creative. Now, if you are standing on that plastic board, you don't have many options for input. You're not fast, and you can't navigate freely. So it's basically like a, a little bit like Guitar Hero, where you're just going down like a rail. And then you can, like, you know, grab, and then you're like, oh, <laughs> I'm grabbing it. And then it's like, and now you flip up the nose. Yeah, okay.
1: <laughs> I just, you know, it, it came out, so 2009, that was really right at the height of <laughs> plastic peripheral fever. Yeah. And I'm not surprised that it came out, but
0: uh,
1: what, a, what a bad idea.
0: <laughs> it didn't work at all. It was also no. exactly how you said, you know, when you get something like Guitar Hero, you need the peripheral. Um, or you want the peripheral definitely in the case of tony hawk ride you did need the peripheral it was only designed for that plastic board and uh, it cost around 120 dollars when it came out and just i don't think anybody wanted that the only people the only sales that they probably have is from journalists and youtubers who just got it for for fun or for review or something Journalists,
1: YouTubers, and the poor, poor children whose parents were trying to do right by them and said, I know yeah. you like skateboarding. I got mm. you this fun video game. And uh, now it's just a
0: $120 piece of plastic. <laughs> I wonder whether I should get something like that now. You know, restart my skate career. <laughs> Start with that. Yeah. It's maybe a good way to <laughs> get back into it.
1: Uh, well, on the uh, on the topic of weird controllers, uh, Stefan... Do you remember the Resident Evil 4 chainsaw
0: controller? A chainsaw controller? I think I've seen yeah. an image of it once, but I, I I hadn't heard of it before. It's bizarre, truly. Uh,
1: so this was a a controller that was meant to be... Well, we'll get into that in a minute. I was going to say it was meant to be used. I don't know that that's true.
0: <laughs> it was meant to be so, like an actual chainsaw. Oh, no. No. <laughs> it's not a bit <laughs> look at this fantastic I, toy I should
1: I should have clarified it was meant to be used as a controller
0: ah okay yeah. I thought like if you're playing a video game but in between you also want to like cut down a hedge or something you you know? Know, that,
1: that really got me um, <laughs> no it was meant to be used as a controller with Resident Evil 4 that came out because uh, Resident Evil 4 one of the seminal moments in it that is really kind of what I think kicked off its popularity is uh, the Chainsaw Man um, that you encounter in the first real fight in Resident Evil 4, when you're trapped in the village and all of these zombie-type enemies are running after your character, Leon Kennedy. There comes a uh, a character, I believe his the fan's name is Dr. Salvatore. I don't know if that's actually canon, but he comes out, he's got a potato sack on his head, and he's just holding a chainsaw. And... If you're unlucky enough to get in his way, he'll cut Leon in half. So this became a really iconic image for Resident Evil 4. And because of that, this company called Newbie Tech, who were kind of known for um, collectible controllers and other game collectibles, released a uh, bulky, weird-looking PS2 and GameCube controller that was... I mean, there's no other way to describe it. It looked like a chainsaw. And you could not use it for the life of you. <laughs> <laughs> because the buttons were all over the place. I mean, it's like, a, it's like a, a little under a foot long, this thing. So imagine holding that while trying to play a game, in a shooting game, no less, where you have to use the shoulder buttons to aim and fire. And the shoulder buttons are about 10 inches apart. Meanwhile, you're trying to reach for the buttons in the middle of it (laughs) it's a it's a cool looking thing but basically i don't know if they walked this back or if they had always held this position newbie tech kind of came out and said hey this is more of a gag collectible it's not meant to be an actual controller the reason i think they walked it back is because they kind of uh advertised it as something that could be used and a fun way to play Resident Evil 4. So I think after people got it and said, hey, this thing looks cool, but it is completely useless, they said, well, it's meant for decoration.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's its primary purpose, I suppose. If you yeah. if you make a controller, I assume that they have some kind of vague idea of what human hands work like. <laughs> you would hope so. <laughs> how they look like, yeah. how many fingers people have, and so on. And... Yeah. Uh, uh, that's why I would assume that they play tested it, but maybe just went ahead with it anyway because it was like basically a gag. Yeah, and
1: you can kind of tell how tongue in cheek it was because uh, the the box that it came in had a drawing of the Chainsaw Man cutting Leon in half. And my favorite part of it, of it is if you look up a picture of this box that it came in, it's a huge box, and the chainsaw actually just sticks out of it <laughs> because it's so. Oblong and weirdly shaped. So it's certainly a relic of a of a different time. The most interesting part of this to me is that I found an IGN review of it when it was released. It was released at forty nine ninety nine That's the price of a controller. Yeah. so it was it wasn't uh, massively inflated due to its collectible status, although nowadays, if you want to get this controller, the lowest price you're going to find is around seven fifty on Amazon, upwards of a thousand on eBay. So I wonder with the remake coming out, if they're going to release something similar as a gag.
0: (laughs) And uh, I would be all for it if they chose to do it. (laughs) Imagine the announcement when they're like, and for our next announcement, we are bringing back (laughs) <laughs> the, the resident controller. evil 4 chainsaw controller and it, you know <laughs> and this time it really works <laughs> yeah i mean if I, you can get a real chainsaw for that price yeah right yeah.
1: <laughs> although you can't half play resident evil 4 with a real chainsaw
0: so well that remains to be seen <laughs> depends on how <laughs> hardcore you actually are <laughs> uh, talking about a uh, completely impractical controllers I pulled this one up a little bit. This is the Wii Bowling Ball. Oh, yeah. Mm, I actually did not know that that existed because I never had a Wii. And Mm. I'm still a little bit surprised and confused that it does exist. But that came out at a time when Wii Bowling was huge. And everyone was kind of using the Wii to just play bowling. The Wii was basically just a virtual bowling machine. And it still is a lot. Like in retirement homes, at least in Germany... Wii oh, Bowling yeah. is super popular still.
1: Same here. It's uh, I think it's Wii Sports and Wii Bowling are up there as the most sold video game because it was usually packaged with the Wii and the Wii was the most sold console. So if you had a Wii, you had this game.
0: Yeah. And of course, it's a actually, I want to make a, a really positive, uh, I want to apply a very positive framing on this because for elderly people and for people in retirement homes, playing something like Wii Bowling is perfect. It's really nice. It's a nice exercise in coordination, in balance. It's basically prophylactic for falling, which is one of the mm. most uh, severe things that can happen to people beyond a certain age. Um, it's really cool. But the Wii Bowling Ball, that was only if you were like truly committed, if you were like a hardcore fan of that game, because it's like a, a plastic bowling ball. It's like a dark blue plastic bowling ball. And it's only for this one specific game. you basically you can open up the bowling ball, so it's like you have two like these half circles, and then you can insert the Wii mode into it. You just stick it in there, so that can you know detect the movement. Mm-hmm. Then you close it back up, and then you've got like on this bowling ball, you've got like buttons on the outer part of the bowling ball that you can use to control things to navigate through the menu. then you get like finger holes that where you put your fingers in and then you basically just do an actual bowling swing but you cannot <laughs> under any circumstance actually let go of the ball uh, see, see this this sounds
1: i mean that's kind of fun if you're if you only have the Wii for Wii bowling and maybe in a retirement home that would be kind of nice but the biggest problem with the Wii was that people were throwing their Wii remotes at the TV yeah and I don't think the bowling ball comes with a strap does it
0: it does. it does. It does. Oh, come it does. With strap. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it does come with a strap. Okay, there's probably All like right. a huge warning sign. This is like do do not <laughs> throw, throw the this ball bowling in, ball into yeah. your TV. Uh, it's just a, <laughs> at this point, then I though must raise this kind of I think it might be a little bit cynical question or um, a little bit naive question of just thinking, at which point is it even worth it playing a video game when mm. you could just go bowling because it's just so similar at a certain point that all you, the only difference is that you don't let go of the ball. There's a lot of these peripherals. It's kind of what we talked about with the guitar hero
1: thing, where maybe the success and the longevity of that controller is that you can use it with pretty much anything. It's just meant to be a controller. And you're right. If you're going to the lengths of creating a bowling ball, (laughs) I mean, again, for elderly folks in retirement homes for whom the Wii is a really nice tool Great, maybe that's maybe that's fun, right? That would be, I could see a retirement home, uh, buying a bowling ball for the Wii as a really nice investment for their their residents, right? Yeah. But for those of us who can go out and who are able-bodied,
0: <laughs> it seems like a lot to put into a a mini game on the Wii. I challenge you to, for an Elden Ring run played only with a Wii ball. bowling <laughs> ball. <laughs> <laughs> no hits. Yeah. If you can do it on
1: a DDR pad, you can do it with the Wii bowling ball. <laughs> In terms of the Wii, I want to talk about the predecessor to motion controls. And I have a theory. I don't have any data to back this final point up, but it's just a feeling I get a Jungian kind of uh, consciousness feeling. So, Stefan, did you ever have the power glove? No. <laughs> no I didn't
0: Me have neither. The power glove, I know what it is, and yeah. I've seen many videos of it. But I have never owned a power glove.
1: It was one of those things where I think I mentioned I had I had a friend up the street who had everything Nintendo, and I would go over there and it was funny because I was young enough that when I went over there there are things in my memory that I think was that real because he had literally everything and so I didn't think the power glove was real. I thought I dreamt it up until I saw like an angry video game nerd
0: video about yeah. it. Probably because the advertisement was like a fever dream. It was
1: definitely a fever dream. And it was, I want to say, very ambitious. Because the idea was that it was it was kind of the 80s vision of virtual reality meeting motion controls. It was really ahead of its time, and I don't think that the technology was quite available for it to work as intended. It was an interesting peripheral that wasn't created by Nintendo, but it was uh, it got their stamp of approval. It had the Nintendo seal of quality and everything, but it was produced by Mattel, a big toy company in the States. And in Japan, it was produced by a company called PAX. And it was a, a glove that you would fit on, uh, supposedly one size fits all. I don't know how true that was, but it kind of worked so that you could control your NES with your, with your hand just sort of using finger movements instead of the controller. And the way that this worked, if I'm understanding it correctly, is that there were a number of, of bytes on each finger that would then send a, a digital signal to a microprocessor on the, the hand, on the power glove. That microprocessor would then send an analog symbol to the television to control whatever was being projected on the screen. So as you can imagine, going from digital to analog to a cathode ray tube tv back in the 80s and early 90s there's a lot of lag there's a lot of failure it didn't really work as intended
0: i find that so funny the idea of them pitching the power glove to nintendo and they're like demonstrating it you know and they're like you can you can do this and it's like uh no wait maybe i twist it this way no it's like and at the end of the presentation it's just like well it doesn't really work and nintendo is like Oh, well. <laughs> they yeah, do it anyway. approval. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> But it, it had a
1: little bit of a an in-between the Guitar Hero guitar and the ProRide board in the sense that it worked with more than just the games it was designed for. It was interesting. So the way that it was designed was it had the, the, the fingers, but then it also had sort of a power pad on the, the wrist with normal Nintendo buttons on it. So... Technically what you could do, there were a couple of games that were released solely for the power glove, um, where I think there was one called Powerball, where you would, it was like tennis basically, where you would grab it and then throw it. Um, but you could also play Mario if you wanted to, you could try to make him run with the glove or you try could just try
0: to make him run. <laughs> the <laughs> operative word,
1: um, or you could use the power pad. So it kind of existed in this liminal space where it kind of half worked for everything. <laughs> And I think that this would have been a major flop if it, if it hadn't been for the film The Wizard. Have you ever seen this film? No. The Wizard? It's a bizarre cultural artifact. It's a movie that was really like a big Nintendo commercial. And it was about a couple of kids traveling to California to go to... Um, they wanted to see their family that was there. But uh, The Wizard character the the little brother character he's a wizard at nintendo games so he can beat any game so they take him to the nintendo world championship in california Uh, and along the way they meet a big bad bully character named lucas who has every nintendo game he's rich and he has a power glove and he made it look i'm going to use heavy air quotes cool (laughs) (laughs) and so i think that movie kind of cemented it in the public consciousness. And this is my theory. I think that the power glove was well known enough that when the, Wii came out, people kind of had in their memory, Oh, Nintendo's done motion controls before. I bet this will be good. And it's kind of this weird sort of amalgamation of the idea of the power glove without the facility of it coming into the Wii remote actually working and, being part of its success
0: certainly i mean nintendo at least has a track record of a range of devices accessories uh, controller gadgets that are peculiar um mm. not all of them worked the power glove certainly one of the most infamous examples of one that yeah at best worked half halfway it did half the <laughs> job that it was supposed to do and it never really properly worked and it's not a fun thing but um it is a testimony, I think, to the degree to which Nintendo is willing to be experimental and to try and explore new avenues of uh, interactive media. So I think in that sense, it did kind of, yeah, basically set a predecessor for future motion controls.
1: I think so. I also, it's a really interesting example of a time that I don't think exists anymore, where it just entered the public consciousness in a few different ways. The wizard was a big thing, but also a uh, fun little fact... Uh, Freddy Krueger, the horror monster, used a power glove in one of the, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies to uh, exact his revenge on some teenagers. So it was all over movies for some reason. I think just because it admittedly looked kind of cool.
0: Yeah. And the fantasy in itself, you can control this game just with, you know, moving your hand. It kind of evokes this whole sphere of wow, one day we're going to wear just like a whole body suit and you're going to be able to run around in the game. And then obviously when you think about it, you realize, well, then you don't need to run around in your living room all the time. It doesn't make (laughs) any sense. But uh, yeah, I think it was definitely, it, it was completely broken and at the same time, kind of ahead of its time. A lot of Nintendo things
1: yeah, broken Na- and ahead of its time.
0: Yeah. Nowadays with <laughs> VR, something like mm. the, the notion of the power glove is kind of revived. The key concepts of many of the contemporary index controllers, for example, for virtual reality headsets are actually um, working in very similar ways, with the exception that they are actually working, of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we have to take a short break and then we have to also talk about Xbox Kinect. We'll be right back.
1: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy.
0: Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And we're back talking about bizarre gaming gadgets. And one of them that basically was, I think, probably one of the biggest flops in the history of video games is the Xbox Kinect? This is basically a camera for um, Xbox consoles and it ought to pick up the physical movements of the player's body and translate it in some form into the game without any controller input necessary. It, of course, sailed in the wake of the Nintendo Wii. They wanted to basically, you know, take a piece of that cake.
1: Mm.
0: Now, the problem with the Kinect was that. First of all, it was um, very hit and miss, as there was no controller there, no sensors that would in any way detect the input. It was just—it was just really a low-resolution camera that was trying to figure out whether there's a whether you lift your hand or whether it's just like a, I don't know, like a flash of light or something in the background. It, it was more bizarre than that because it
1: was uh, there's actually video of what it looks like when when the sensors are on. It was like there were hundreds of dots in your space uh, that would basically outline your body in the three-dimensional space, and then it would track your body. It was, I mean, frankly, it was an impressive idea, but as you said, it was hit or miss, and I would argue more miss than hit.
0: Yeah, it basically was a hit with some very casual games where the input would be, you know, like large movements That could be detected. Um, But Microsoft made one grave mistake. They took the Kinect and they saw such great potential in it that they wanted to take it further. And in 2013, when they unveiled the Xbox One, they said that it would only work with the Kinect. The Kinect camera had to be connected to the Xbox One at all times. This is something that's basically almost like a forgotten chapter of video game history where they went on stage and proudly presented the Xbox One, which actually was, for all intents and purposes, gaming was only a small part of that presentation because they mostly spoke about, you know, like television and films and so on. And, mm. you know, the whole video game culture was watching and was like, oh, what are you doing? This is a, a video game console. And suddenly it's just basically a home receiver with a mandatory <laughs> camera that you need to have installed in your, in your living room. Truly
1: strange. Mandatory camera, and that was the same press conference, I think, where they announced that it had to be connected to the internet all the time.
0: At all times, yes. Yeah,
1: so I, I remember that E3, uh, the anime Attack on Titan was very big, and I just have this memory in my head of um, one Titan viciously stomping another Titan, and it was the one stomping the other was the PS4 stomping the Xbox One.
0: <laughs> Yeah, I think that was also the presentation where Xbox then went into the elaborate process of how you can borrow a game to a friend and where then PlayStation made a video satirizing that where they just said how to borrow a game. They're just like, here you go. Here you are. (laughs) They really, it really flopped. It went so bad that Microsoft soon thereafter... They um, basically retracted almost everything that they said at this conference. They said they're going to focus on gaming. They said it's not going to have to be connected to the internet at all times. And that the connect doesn't actually have to be connected. Because it makes absolutely zero sense. Um, especially because um, it was also a bit of a privacy issue. Many people didn't really like the idea of putting up a camera in the living room. I know that nowadays most people are a bit more chilled. Because every laptop everything has kind of a camera um yeah. but still it made some people feel kind of uneasy of saying okay why do you why do i have to set this up if i want to just play regular video games with a controller i have to have have to be filmed at all times it's a bit weird <laughs> it
1: even in even in retrospect now it still feels very weird because yeah. i agree there's a lot of devices that we have that are always on and they have a camera in them and everything but there's something about the way the connect worked like like we described where it was just a full 3D rendering of whatever room it was in that felt like a real invasion of privacy. Yeah. And uh on top of that the connect you mentioned that there were a few games I think like the dance central games were really big on the connect but any game that was meant to be
0: narrative or more action gameplay focused just didn't work at all. It didn't work. And eventually they just they entirely discontinued it in 2017. They just said, Okay, no connect anymore. We're moving ahead with our lives. It's
1: funny because you mentioned that it was they were trying to
0: take a bite out of the the Wii, right? And and
1: at that time the Wii U with just motion controls and these sort of um, peripherals that you would use as almost a sec- using your yourself as a secondary controller. Uh, there was the Wii, then there was PlayStation Move which was, it was it was expensive, but it worked fairly well. And then there's the Kinect, which is just at the bottom of the barrel of all of these.
0: Yeah, it's really quite a bit of a shame how they pulled it off, because I think there was the PlayStation Eye toy before that. Yes. Mm, that was on the PlayStation 2. That was a very similar concept. It was just a camera. You didn't need a controller. But it was clearly framed as a toy. That's why it was called Eye Toy. And it had a particular function. In casual games, for example, I remember you play a casual party game where you have to just basically clean a window and you just basically just wave your hand around to clean the window. For such purposes, these devices are cool. To have it as a mandatorily integrated device that's the main way of how to control your, your console, Mm-mm, that doesn't work. Yeah,
1: just a bit bit too strange. And, you know, this is... Let uh, I want to ask you this question now because... It seems to me that between the Kinect and things like the Power Glove, it almost goes back to your question about the Wii Bowling Ball, where you start thinking, did anyone really want that? You know, the idea that hadn't games come along far enough that we're all happy with a handheld controller and we don't need to feel like we're actually stepping into a virtual world? I just never, as these things came out, I never really felt that we were achieving a goal that people wanted.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think it was more the idea of removing the controller entirely because the controller is something that's very gaming specific. And uh, Mm. the same goes for the remote, like, you know, having a remote control. That that was kind of the idea of, of Xbox or that Microsoft pitched at the time of saying you don't have to search for a remote. If you want to change the channel, you just swipe with your hand and then it will change the channel. And while all of it, Sounded good in theory, and I can see that I can see some future where you know devices are capable of uh, registering gestures with such precision. Sure, it of course would mean that if you sit in front of your TV and you scratch yourself a little bit, then (laughs) it would just randomly start flicking through the channels, and nobody wanted that. Nobody was happy with that.
1: No, I think uh, just a just a weird experimental time in video games, the the Kinect's lifespan, where. You get the sense that there was somebody at Xbox who really wanted it to succeed, like one mm. higher up who was really. Yeah, but
0: uh, one person yeah. that's it's that's all that that's needed. One person in an executive position that says no, but this is the future. We mm. we're not going to use controllers and remote controls and so on in twenty years. It's all going to be that. And unfortunately, they bet on the wrong horse. Well,
1: speaking of uh, interesting ways of control, I want to go from. No controller with the connect to the ultimate controller. All of the controllers. <laughs> <laughs> with Steel Battalion, the Steel Battalion Mega Jockey 9000. So this was for a game that came out in 2002 in Japan. It was uh, made by Capcom and it was called Steel Battalion. And the best way that I can describe it is that you're basically controlling a Metal Gear <laughs> in the game like an upright tank mecha that you can walk around and it's really it's really cool it's a very fun game and it was a moderate hit in japan didn't do so well in the west and i think that's partially because it was packaged with this 200 dollars control system that looked like a norad uh, missile silo command
0: center <laughs> It's like, who has space for that in their living room, like setting up such an elaborate control, You basically need to transform your entire living space. It was formidable.
1: It had 44 inputs. So there were a ton of buttons. There were two joysticks, a separate throttle handle, a radio dial so that you could communicate with with the game or you could get um, messages in the game, five switches that would change different settings on your mecha, an eject seat. Not a not a real one, but I <laughs> I, uh, I have more to say about that. But it had an eject button, and then three foot pedals that you would use to maneuver at different speeds. So it was like I think about games like Flight Simulator, or there are certain racing games that come with pretty um, impressive steering wheel gadgets. Um, this was like the ultimate. You're you're in a mecha and you're
0: controlling it. I remember that even these steering wheels for racing games, um, there were some cool ones, and there still are some cool ones. But I remember that you needed to be very careful which one you purchase. I had one when I was a mm. kid, like where you basically had like these. It had these plastic seating uh, wings at the bottom, and you would just basically you would sit on it, and you would put your legs on top so that it doesn't move around <laughs> that much. And then you would just <laughs> hold it in your lap and try and stir, and it really didn't work with great precision. And the thing is, of course, that if you have something. That takes over your entire living room, where yeah. basically, where your mother would come in and would be like, oh my God, <laughs> what's <laughs> happening now?
1: <laughs> well, the, the funny thing is, unlike all those millions of steering wheel components that came with racing games, the Steel Battalion Mega Jockey 9000 worked like a dream. It was, people still swear by this thing. It was so precisely put together, and it was so, I don't know if intuitive is the right word, but it did what it was meant to do and it was a really big part of the success of the game and the franchise which again I want to say very moderate hit even in Japan but it was a game that was kind of shot into infamy because of this crazy controller system like I mentioned it was around $200 um, if you wanted to buy it and play it for the Xbox and so obviously you know back in 2002 $200 that's probably more like. 280, 300 nowadays. Yeah. And that's a lot of money to put down on one game. So it was really played by critics and super hobbyists who really liked mecha anime and things like that. So you can look into its reviews, very positive. And I do want to say, I have played this once with this mega jockey 9,000. Yeah. (laughs) It was at, um, it was at a PAX convention where one of the best things about Pax is that they have a free play floor where they have every console you can imagine from time immemorial and they have a bunch of these cool arcade peripherals and things like that. So I saw because I had i had heard about this when I was a kid and I saw that they had one of these things. So I went to the 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 kind of attendant who's in the the library to check things out and I said, "Hey, can I play this uh the Mega Jockey 9000?" <laughs> and uh I can imagine <laughs> she's like You what? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So he he says, oh, yeah, I've been waiting for somebody to want to try it. And so it was so bulky, though, they didn't have it set up, but they had a corner in case somebody wanted to use it. So he and I went over there and spent about 30 minutes plugging everything in. And I had one of the most fun gaming experiences for about an hour. It was a lot of fun. So this is one of those weird ones that it was so niche and so particular, but it worked. And it was really cool. So, Steel Battalion, pretty fun.
0: Yeah. I mean, you can't do that just for one game. I know that there are people who are like super into these simulator games, like the, Mm -hmm. you know, omnibus simulator and such things, the flight simulator. Yeah. And that have like, they basically built like a tiny, uh, uh, like a closet where they put up all the controls and stuff. And that's then their little, you know, like little cave where they can. Uh, yeah. play with these elaborate devices and controls. And I think that's really cool. Like if you have that kind of hobbyist dedication to do something like that, I'm sure that it's a great time, but it's not It's not a product for the masses.
1: Certainly not. And I think that's, uh, that's only made clearer when speaking of the Kinect, there was a, another game for Steel Battalion that came out on the Kinect. And without the Mega Jockey 9000,
0: it is just not the same. <laughs> Can't do without the Mega Jockey 9000. I actually, I heard about that game. I heard about the Steel Battalion game that worked with the Kinect, where they basically swayed in the complete opposite direction of saying just like, yeah. you don't need any controls. Now everything's kind of invisible before you. And of course it didn't work at all because how is the Kinect supposed to differentiate between all of these like like small inputs that you can do there? Well, you know what Xbox uh,
1: always says, Stefan? When in doubt, mark it to no one.
0: <laughs> well actually I've got also uh, one more one more Kinect related accessory yep. uh, this is probably the most peculiar one that i found in my research Certainly. this is the play on game boat it is <laughs> it's a boat <laughs> it's, it's related to the Kinect of course um, there was this game that you could get for the Kinect Kinect adventures mm. and it was um, kind of a popular game it was part of this these like small casual party games that you could play and that halfway worked and there was one of these games where you go down a stream in like a little rubber raft boat and <laughs> you have to lean to the sides to control it and you have to occasionally hop uh, in order to jump over obstacles. And this play-on-game boat, that is if you want to have the ultimate Connect adventure rubber boat experience. Because it's really just a <laughs> boat <laughs> It's it's like (laughs) you get it and you you take it out of the package i found like an old i think it was like a kotaku video or something um where they they reviewed it and you you take it out of the package and then you spend some time to obviously inflate the rubber boat and then you put it on the floor in your living room and that's what you do and that's it yeah doesn't it doesn't it sound like somebody at microsoft knew
1: a guy who bought a warehouse full of old like rafts or something Ah. how
0: how am i gonna unload these (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what to do with all these rubber boats and it's like hey this is the perfect accessory (laughs) i got the perfect thing that is (laughs) apparently in addition to not doing anything it also smelled really bad (laughs) it smelled really strongly of rubber (laughs) you're really selling me on this i love the phrase in addition to not doing anything (laughs) It's so Uh, cool. The the play on game boat. So I can totally recommend uh, looking up some YouTube videos of people reviewing the play on game boat. Now we've got one last one, right? We do. And and before we get into this last one, I just
1: want to, I want to make a quick note. Do you think we're, uh, because that was, that was kind of recent, you know, in the last decade or so, we're not talking about the power glove or even the resident evil four chainsaw controller. Do you think we're at a point in gaming where we're past that kind of silliness
0: no, no, <laughs> <laughs> well, not at all. I think we're not at all past that. I think that we're going to look forward to many, many more bizarre accessories, if only for the for the sake of being a collectible or yeah, yeah. being weird, and then knowing that you know nobody's going to buy this thing, but it's be- going to become a cultural icon. Basically,
1: it becomes a footnote on some wiki somewhere. Right?
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, the last one we have is one that we
1: we opened with the Game Boy Printer and the Game Boy Camera. Ah. So these were these were two things that came in tandem with each other. The Game Boy Camera came first, and it was a really cool addition to the Game Boy that... Um, cool in, in theory, I suppose, <clears throat> in the sense that you could plug it into your Game Boy, and it had a little camera on it, and you could take, really, like, selfies of yourself. Or... Turn it around and take photos of whatever you like, and they weren't great quality photos, no, as we they mentioned. Were yes, <laughs> they, were all, they were. You know, think. I mean, think of a Game Boy screen, and then think of a picture being taken on that. <laughs> That's basically what it was. It was all in grayscale. It was grainy. At best, it was shoddy looking, and at worst, it was horrifying. And yeah. uh, that being said, it was a. Really weird flash in the pan success, and you mentioned that you spent about three hours on it. If you kind of blow that out to the macro level, this unit sold five hundred thousand five hundred thousand units in three weeks in Japan. Yeah.
0: It was the Game Boy. I mean, everybody had yeah. a Game Boy, and any kind of accessory that would come out would would be successful because people, were it's like gobbling it up. They were. It was Game
1: Boy was riding high, and this thing. I think I mean very much less popular in America. I don't know. It sounds like you had one, but uh I don't know if it was all the rage in Germany when it came out.
0: Certainly not all the rage. No. I think it was just because I wanted everything Game Boy related. <laughs> it was like my life companion.
1: That's true. Yeah. And uh I mean it was it was cool. It was a ambitious little thing. That's the thing about Nintendo is that they don't do anything without ambition. And this was a a cool little peripheral that you could add and kind of play with. There were a couple of games that would come with it where you could, sounds like you played one, you could actually put a picture of yourself on a little character and run through a a level with it. Is that right? Yeah,
0: it was, uh, the only game that I remember, it was like a juggling game. So you would have your face projected onto uh, like a stick figure and you Mm. could also like, you could take several pictures so you can make different, Facial expressions, and they would be employed whenever, like, you can make a happy face and a sad face, and so on. (laughs) And they would like kind of cycle through, and then you would just like have these two hands, and you would try and and juggle like a bunch of juggling balls. (laughs) And when you drop the ball, then it would show your sad face. Basically,
1: that's kind of funny. I I think that again, that that friend up the street who just had everything Nintendo. I remember he used it for two things. He used the camera to take pictures and then put them over into Mario Paint because that's what you could do. You could basically Photoshop pictures that you took on the Game Boy Color in Mario Paint, which was a fun game in its own right uh, back in the day. But the other thing that came with it was the printer. So it came out a little bit later. Um, I think the camera came out in 99 and the printer came out... Oh no, excuse me. The camera came out in 98... And the printer came out in early 99. And it was really interesting because it was kind of a weird high-tech device put onto this Game Boy camera that was not very high-tech. It used special thermal paper that read the grayscale uh, uh, pixelation of the picture that you had taken. And it would actually print things out on these little kind of glossy little sheets of paper. And I know that you could print your photos, of course, but the way that I think it was only ever used in my memory in America were the kids who would actually complete the Pokedex on Pokemon, and you could print out a little certificate from Game Freak saying that you did it, which was pretty cool.
0: That's very sweet, yeah. It's a very very nice way of integrating uh, digital and analog medium, I'm Mm. going to say. And I'm also... Like when we first started preparing stuff for this episode, I actually was thinking about talking about Amiibo. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because it uh, because Amiibo is bizarre, but then I thought better of it because I think while it's not for me, Amiibo is not for me, but it is for it is for kids and it's for collectors. And I while putting the research together. Thought that it is kind of cool that Nintendo always remained inventive and experimental in these ways. You could do there would be a thousand ways to have the same kind of functionality that you have with amiibo just a lot easier. But they're not doing that because that's what they're focusing on and it kind of works. And so I thought it's not really a bizarre thing. It's something that I actually find really commendable that they are so inventive and creative with their devices.
1: I totally agree. And and the other thing about it. And here's a plug for the future part two plus episode for the history of Nintendo. Um, we talked about their creativity in the the first episode, but they have a a real knack for introducing something and not throwing it away completely. Because the the Amiibos, I think that when they came out, they had had uh, those Skylander figures to kind of precede them. So there was there was a there was kind of already a market for figures that worked with video games. So they just kind of went into that. But where Nintendo differed was that they stuck with it. And now they're, I mean, they're everywhere. I get excited when a new Amiibo comes out. I got the Sephiroth one on my shelf right now.
0: (laughs) I don't have a single Amiibo. I've never used one, but I just find the idea cool that you collect these things, you have a character in Smash, and then you can just basically transfer the data and go to a friend's place and then just pop it right in. But even such things like Nintendo Labo... I recently had to think of that. Uh, Also, like, a very weird concept where you just build things out of cardboard and you have, like, all of these folding instructions and stuff and you can be creative and put stickers on it and color it if you want to. And it actually works like small toys for very specific games. Uh, I must say I love that. I love the sense of physicality that Nintendo Mm -hmm. puts into its games. They never forget their roots as a toy company.
1: I think that's it. And, you know... uh, this is this is actually a, a kind of sweet, charming way to round out this episode talking about Nintendo, because I do think for all of the funny peripherals that they've come up with, that creativity is really their strong suit, as you're saying. I'm I'm thinking about you know, we we don't touch on news all that often anymore unless it's huge news on our show. But I'm sure you stumbled across that story that said that the higher ups at Nintendo were taking a pay cut so that they wouldn't have to let go of anybody. Yes, And there's there's something truly commendable to me about a video game company, especially nowadays, basically saying, no, we're going to stick by the chances that we took. And if they don't pan out, maybe we don't make as much money that year, right? And if they do pan out, we steer the course of video games for the next 10 years.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I mean, Nintendo, um, history proves them right. Because mm. the thing is that the the Wii is incredibly successful. Okay, of course, the Wii U f- it was a failure, It was, well, it was, let's say, minorly successful, by far not as successful as the Wii. But with the Switch, they landed another huge hit, which is now just breaking the sales record and, you know, basically ramping up to becoming one of, if not the most sold console in history. It's still got a ways to go, of course, but it's already on place three or something. Yeah. yeah. And this is a current gen, well... Uh, For them, for Nintendo, (laughs) it's a (laughs) current console. Yeah, but Ah, yeah, you're right. And and the Switch has that as well. The Switch has this physicality as well with the with the Switch controllers, the Joy Cons, and in every presentation that they do, they have this sound effect that they put in. You immediately have that physical click uh, that just resonates with you. It's genius, and
1: it really is as much as a failure, or as you say, minor success, as the Wii U was. That's a total example of Nintendo saying, no, no, we have something here. We're going to refine it and make it cool. Just like with the Power Glove. They said, "Mm, there's something there. Motion controls. Let's look into it.
0: (laughs) Uh, They are cool, even though not everything is for me, but I admire them because they are not scared because they are just like, um, well, you know, they've got lots of money. Nintendo is a very wealthy company. They're very healthy as well. And uh, I just like, yeah, we're going to experiment. We're going to try something. If it fails then okay, we're going to do something else, but we're certainly not going to do just the same thing that everyone else does.
1: So kudos to anybody who takes a chance on peripherals because a lot of them are fun and weird and bizarre, as we titled the episode. But uh, if nothing else, they become really funny footnotes in gaming history.
0: Yeah, they become an item on the Studying Pixels podcast. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) well thank you so very much for listening to this episode you can of course submit your favorite bizarre gaming gadgets on studyingpixels.com contact and there's also in case you don't want to enter into a patreon subscription which is totally understandable if you just want to give us a little one time off boost you can do that as well we've got like a paypal me account it's paypal.me studyingpixels where you can just send us over a dollar if you wish to. Only if you wish to, no pressure whatsoever. We hope you have a very enjoyable week and we'll talk again next weekend. Bye-bye.